Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Early April and sunset in Dubrovnik, and I pause at the head of a steep flight of steps in the old walled city. The steps, the whole city, are cut in golden stone and they glow in the evening light. The sight is warming, though the air is certainly not. The bora, the ferocious wind, which from time to time scours the coasts of the Adriatic, is just ebbing after days of gales. Yesterday we endured, well, let's just call it a bumpy landing at the local airport. The cabin was completely silent as we descended, and when we touched down, we were told that the previous day, no flights had been able to land at all. The evening sky is blue then, but the wind is icy, and summer feels a long way off still. There has been a sound these last few minutes, just on the edge of hearing, coming almost into focus and then ebbing away again. I had even glanced up into the sky and spotted them, whirling and wheeling high above the red roofs and golden domes of the city, black against the blue of the sky. Crows, I thought, if I thought anything at all. No, I couldn't have thought anything at all. I was too pleased with Golden Dubrovnik to think about these black, wheeling shapes and the sound they made, the screaming, the screeching. But now my husband looks into the blue air and stops at the head of the golden steps and he calls aloud, the Swifts are here. Yes, the Swifts are here on the Adriatic coast already, earliest April and the Swifts are here. The Swifts have reached the Mediterranean on their long summer journey from the rainforests of the Congo. They're on their way home. To our home, we hope. A few years ago, we had swift nesting boxes set high on the wall of our house in Dublin. Just under the eaves, a north-facing wall, a clear runway to land, everything just as they like it. The very boxes were bespoke, designed and constructed for swifts and for no other bird. They arrived in the post from a kind friend who had ordered them and then realised she had no place to position them. Try them out, she said. You never know. The swifts are just one more species in trouble. They rely for nesting sites on old nooks and crannies and crevices and roofs of old buildings. Our mania for restoration, for sealing and repairing, doesn't suit them at all. They are increasingly homeless in our cities, meaning no eggs, no young, no future generations. They navigate by the night sky. At dusk, they rise high into the atmosphere and take their bearing by the stars, which imprint themselves on their minds. And the swifts remember, year by year, how to steer, how to find their way to their summer homes. Break this transmission, no nesting site, no eggs, no young, and it's gone forever, and their relatives will go elsewhere. We set our swift nesting boxes on the north-facing wall of the house then, and we even played the recorded calls that are recommended by the books, and we waited 
and we waited. They didn't come to settle with us. We saw them arrive the first year, flying and circling over the neighbourhood, scouting and exploring. But they didn't come to nest with us. And the same the second year. Don't worry, said the books. It usually takes them three or so years to decide that, yes, you'll do. Three years is the charm. It means a good deal to me, the idea that the Swifts might choose to come and spend their fleeting summer season at our place. It staves off the loneliness that I think humans are increasingly experiencing as the Anthropocene, the human age, proceeds. And as we pick off species after species to leave more room for us. We feel, as well as know, that we are part of a great, immeasurably complex ecosystem. We feel, as well as know, that we cannot forever pick off bits and branches of this ecosystem without eventually destroying the whole of it. And we feel, as well as know, the grief and, yes, the loneliness that comes from being increasingly alone on the planet. And this explains maybe why I stop stock still at the head of a flight of golden steps in Dubrovnik on an icy blue sky April day. The swifts are screaming overhead and heading north and this is the third year since we acquired our swift boxes and the third year is the charm. Thank you. The title of the poem is Incunabula, which uh, refers to books published before 1501, very precise, but it comes from the Latin word for cuna, cradle. So it's kind of an autobiographical poem, um, the notion of cradle books, you'll see. I'm going to read three sections. Incunabula. In my childhood home, there was a room of books left over from my father's days in Belfast. They were toys to us. In hard linen jackets of primary reds and greens, they were building blocks in the spare room, the one not needed yet for children. Its bare shell walls smelling thrillingly of plaster and of possibility. Not a library, but piled haphazardly on the floor, they were a magic mountain in our eyes. It was my favourite place to play, to go in there at night, to write, to scribble in their margins. It was as if he no longer needed them. Those that made it onto shelves in later years were paperbacks and full of optimism. Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, Teach Yourself to Swim, Teach Your Child to Read, How to Lay a Lawn. And then 
a big, regal-looking book, propped up and hidden in a velvet-lined box that I was not supposed to find, and would eventually be lost with all the others on how to make the perfect Catholic marriage. <laughs> My father made his first garden in that house in Liggertown, facing the Sperrins. He named it Linwood after a military march. My uncle's was Belfigur. Tiny bricks came out of red metal moulds like magic, like jellies. He riddled the soil for stones like flour, the mixing of cement and alchemy, of sand and turpentine that made rainbow colours in the well of his spirit level. He planted swathes of Siberian orange wallflower, perfumed for christenings and birthdays, that lived up to its name as the bee flower, alive with sound. Michaelmas daisies were September flowers, and Livingstons fascinated when their pastel petals went to bed at night, opening up to the sun like us each day. Peppery lupins, we anthropomorphized into characters we visited on our bikes around the lawns. The purple lupin was a teacher's house, the white, the doctor's. Lilac and flowering currant were the smells of my May altar. And we had baby gardens of polyanthus, the word seeming to grow in me as much as the flower. My friend Joanna and I would lie on top of haystacks in Tommy Craig's field that sloped to the river and try to work out how babies came. She swore she'd seen her mother carry a bowl of blood to the bathroom one night. That must have something to do with it. She was Protestant, so knew about these things, and had parents who didn't go to church. The hogs were Protestant too and had no children, just a Pekingese called Suki. They would ask us in to play Scrabble in a house full of plants, paintings and books. Gwenda Lytle told us that they sunbathed in the nude. In summer, the ghost beds of the flax dams stank and the sickly smell of privet sent us to sleep. On Fridays, we would go for messages to Straman, pore over magazines bought in the Bridge End, and marvel that the Osmonds lived in a place called Provo. <laughs> One night, after seeing a documentary on Vietnam, I dreamed soldiers ran up Tommy Craig's field with guns. My granny told me that would never happen here. When I was a child, we had a Victoria biscuit tin full of photographs that I used to pour over on rainy days. My favourite was a small black and white Polaroid 
that had been taken one Sunday in the summer of 1970 in Ravensdale Forest, a few yards from the border. The scraps of a picnic are on a bench to the left of the frame. The trees in the background are dark and dense. My mother, my father, his brothers and sisters and their significant others are lined in a row with their arms about each other's shoulders, a huddle of long hair crimpling and paisley. The two small girls in the foreground are my sister and me. I was three at the time and remember only odd details from that day. What I do remember is that it was the first time I was aware of the border. I grew up in a small town on the edge of Belfast Lock. For a few years, I lived within walking distance of all the relatives on my father's side. In 1975, some of them began to leave the north. Crossing the border to visit them became part of our bank holidays, Easter, summer holidays. We would drive through Banbridge and Newry and join the queue at the checkpoint. Sometimes it didn't take long. Other times we waited for hours, my sisters and I in the back seat, fidgety, bickering, complaining to our parents we needed to go to the toilet. Further down the road, in Ashburn or Slane or Swords, we'd stop for food or petrol, and I remember how unfamiliar and almost exotic the southern accent sounded. We moved south in August 1979, swapping our bungalow on a street full of children for the home my grandmother had been unable to settle in, a flat above a pub streaked with diesel fumes on the main Dublin to Cork Road. Much as I was excited to start a new life, I felt my grandmother had got the better deal. For the first couple of weeks, my parents treated the move like a holiday. They brought us for outings to the lakes of Blessington and Glendalough, to the National Stud where we gawped at Arkle Skeleton. They took us to the cinema to see Superman, and when we came out, a newsboy was proclaiming the death of Mountbatten and of 18 British soldiers on the border. The troubles were going on without us. I started my new school. It took a couple of weeks for my ear to adjust to the flat midland vowels of my classmates. They seemed to be having similar trouble with me. Every time I spoke, I was asked to repeat what I had said. Certain words delighted them. Hi, now, came, same. A couple of months after we moved, we went back up north for a visit. We went to our old house. My grandmother had replaced our cream living room carpet with a frosty green one and her ornaments were lined along the mantelpiece where our clock and candelabra had been. My friend from across the street came to the door and I found myself having to tune into her accent. She spoke like me, yet sounded foreign. Later, when we drove back over the border, I sat in the back seat with my sisters and tried to make sense of it. If I didn't belong in the north, where did I belong? I've crossed the border countless times since. It doesn't matter what direction I'm traveling in. North or south, I never feel that I'm going home. There's a Welsh word that has no equivalent in English, heraith. It means homesickness for a home you can never go back to, or that perhaps never was. 
a yearning or grief for the lost places of your past. I think I wanted that old photograph to restore the sense of myself that I had as a small child. I wanted it to show me who I was or had been or who I was meant to be. It's a lot to ask of a small piece of glossy card. Susan Sontag wrote that all photographs are memento mori, testaments to time's relentless melt. The camera captured my family in a moment that a second later had passed. And it's not lost on me that the photograph was taken on the border at the very spot that later seemed to symbolise my loss of a sense of belonging. For the last 20 years, I've been less conscious of the transition from north to south, from south to north. Without watchtowers and barbed wire and khaki, the crossing seems less momentous. Mostly it's because I've come to understand that home is not just about place. I found it in the WhatsApp group in which my parents and siblings and I exchange news and slag each other mercilessly. I found it at my own kitchen table where my Sligo-born children imitate my accent, their vowels crossing back and forth across the border. I don't know where I'm from, I tell them. You do, they say. You're a Nordy. gift it is to be here all of us and um, what it is what a gift it is to know safety fledgling when we left our wee stone cottage in the central bog of Ireland at the start of this year I found it somewhat comical the thing that worried me the most it was not by any reckoning any of the things I thought would affect me. I was not unsettled by having sold a house at the back end of nowhere for pittance, with no idea if we'd ever afford anywhere in Clare, the place we felt our hearts pulled towards like moths to any bright light there for the taking. Neither was I anxious to be leaving the home into which we carried our son after he arrived in the world like a small naked fledgling in the second spring of a global pandemic. I don't even think the fact of leaving our garden troubled me. The first stretch of land I ever tended, the space into which I carried my peripartum depression, the parcel of earth that taught me so much about staying and survival, about hope and healing. No, none of these things left me as anxious as a man-made piece of metal, it must be said. The thing I was most worried about when leaving our home amid global, economic, 
housing and climate crises was a tractor. There wasn't just one tractor, of course, but for my young son, when we leave Westmeath for Clare, there is only one tractor. Every tractor he sees is one and the same tractor. It will be months before he learns to differentiate them by brand and colour, before he begins to understand each tractor on any given laneway as having its own individual job, its own unique role in the play between people, the land, and all that comes between. The tractor that kept me from sleep in those box-packing, internet-canceling days was a big red one that belonged to the grown-up son of people not far from where we lived. And my not-grown-up son loved it with all his heart. I would lie with him, the limbs of his small, soft body all over mine, and he would whisper, big tractor plough fields, smiling in his sleep. When we went away for any stretch, he would ask us, nearly home, when what he really meant was nearly tractor. <laughs> I was scared that when we moved, there would be no tractors, or that he would realize that they were not the same one, that this grief would leave him displaced and scared, that he might feel like he didn't belong there. We arrived to tractors, so many tractors, at least one of which is red. He has settled in Clare, our son, as though he has never lived anywhere but here, and this ease has helped his father and I in turn to feel part of the welcoming community into which we've landed. Tractors have been on my mind again lately, They've been in the media too, following their use a while ago in temporary makeshift blockades outside an emergency centre for asylum seekers the other side of the county. A writer I value tweeted about a group of young men she'd met, wandering, confused and upset on a laneway not far from where we live. She got some hostile responses. Where exactly was she from herself? People asked. A whole county away. What right had she got to tell the local people what to do? The blockades were also made of hay bales, one of my son's favorite things to see on a tractor. I try to imagine him a decade or two from now, arriving, confused and scared, to a place he doesn't know, to find his path blocked by a tractor and hay bales. But I have to stop. It's too painful. 
The night I finished writing this, a fledgling wren made their first flight from the nest their parents built into a small gap in the roof outside our home. We've watched the parents fly from tree to hedge through thicket in scorching sun, trying to find enough food to keep their wee ones alive. We put our son to bed that night and left the door open to the setting sun. Given there was nothing blocking their path, the fledgling came right on in. We give our all to raise our young, to mind them best we can, but a moment comes when they will fledge our nest. We cannot control where they end up. All we can hope for is a door wide open to this achingly beautiful world on the first night they really need it. I thought I would read a few extracts from this poem that's called Derry. And it's a, a ballad-like account of a girl growing up here in the town. Uh, the poem begins in 1970, the year I was born. Derry. I was born between the Craigan and the Bogside, to the sounds of crowds and smashing glass, by the river foil with its suicides and riptides, I thought that city was nothing less than the whole and rain-domed universe. A teacher's daughter, I was one of nine faces afloat in the looking glass fixed in the hall, but which was mine, I wasn't ever sure. We walked to school linked hand in hand in twos and threes like paper dolls. I slowly grew to understand the way the grey cathedral cast its shadow on our learning, cool as sunlight crept from east to west. The adult world had tumbled into hell from where it wouldn't find its way for 30 years. The local priest played Elvis tunes and made us pray for starving children and for peace, and lastly, for the king. At mass, we'd chant hypnotically, Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy. Sing to St. Columba of his small oak grove, O Derry, mine. We'd cross the border in our red cortina, Stopped at the checkpoint just too long for fractious children, searched by a teenager, drowned in a uniform, cumbered with a gun, who seemed to think we were trouble on the run and not the Von Trapp family singers, <laughs> harmonising every song in rounds to pass the journey quicker. Smoke coiled up from terraces and fog meandered softly down the valley to the Brandywell and the Greyhound races, the ancient walls with their huge graffiti, arms that encircled the old city solidly. Beyond their pale, the Rossville flats, mad vision of modernity, 
snarling crossbreeds leashed to rails. A robot under remote control like us commenced its slow acceleration towards a device at number six, home of the moderate politician. Only a hoax for once some boys had made from parcel tape and batteries gathered on forays to the BSR, the disused electronics factory. My candle flame faltered in a cup. We were stood outside the barracks in a line, chanting in rhythm, calling for a stop to strip searches for the Armagh women. The proof that Jesus was a dairyman, 33, unemployed and living with his mother, the old joke ran. While half the town were queuing at the brew, the fortunate others bent to the task of typing out the checks. Boom, we'd jump at another explosion, windows buckling in their frames. And next you could view the smouldering omission in a row of shops, the missing tooth in a street. Jerry Adams' mouth was out of sync in the goldfish bowl of the TV screen, our dubious link with the world. Each summer, one by one, my sisters upped and crossed the water, armed with a grant from the government, the butler system's final flowers, until my own turn came about. I watched that place grow small before the plane ascended through the cloud, and I could not see it clearly anymore. Thank you. That was Sunday Miscellany, Home and Belonging, Part 2, a mix of new and past recordings from Derry, Ballyshannon, and most recently from the Crescent Arts Centre in Belfast as part of the Belfast Book Festival last month. The scripts were Swift Boxes by Neil Hegarty, Incunabula, a poem by Maureen Boyle, Here Eighth, Carrick Arnon by Louise Kennedy, Fledgling was by Kerini Doherty, and Derry, a poem by Colette Bryce. The music was Blackbird, played by Scott Flanagan on keyboard, The Mushroom Tree, The Kid on the Mountain, played by Emer McGowan on whistle and Donna Hennessy on guitar, On Lying, a song written and composed by Sarah E. Cullen, and Maiden Voyage by Herbie Hancock, played by Scott Flanagan on keyboard. On sound, Damien Chanel and Tommy O'Sullivan. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinators are Elaine Conlon and Jane Byrne and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And for more about this and other arts and culture programmes, go to the website rte.ie. And to listen back to this morning's programme, it's on the RTE radio app or the website rte.ie slash radio one slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.